Hey everyone, welcome to the Grabs Podcast, where we bring stories of real life rescues to you firsthand from those involved. My name is Grant. I'm going to be hosting today. And with me, I got Dale Sauce here. Uh, he's a firefighter in Indiana. He's going to be talking about a grab uh, that was made way back in 1998, but I'm sure there's a lot we can listen to. So welcome, Dale. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you, Grant? Good. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your fire department? Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, I'm a, this uh, department that this happened at was my part-time fire department at the time. Um, I was a career firefighter with a different department, which I've moved on all within the same county. Um, but I've been a career firefighter for 27 years, uh, 34 in the fire service from volunteer part-time to full-time. Uh, so the department I was with that day, we were working part-time. There's three of us and uh, staffing one apparatus, one engine for the uh, basically the night tour, Pack 12, we call it, and um, one station. Uh, that fire department now is at three stations and growing exponentially. We all are. We're all uh, growing, uh, fast growing area within uh, Indiana. So people have an idea. Take us back to 1998, what that department was like then. Um, I'm guessing it was a lot of guys that had career jobs elsewhere that so you didn't have the same crew. Uh, just kind of talk us through uh, what that environment was like there. Yeah, it was um, predominantly volunteer. I had what we called uh, paid standby at the time. Uh, they do have a uh, majority of their uh, staffing now is full time. But at that time, it was part time. Uh, I usually had three people on duty uh, working 12 hour shifts. Uh, we staffed one station, uh, 74-ish square miles. Uh, that was covered predominantly agriculture at the time, um, but growing up, getting a lot of higher-end subdivisions, anywhere from 500000 to million-dollar homes, all the way down to $100,000 homes. Uh, very big mix, agriculture, residential area. We were augmented by... Uh, volunteers responding from home and some mutual aid partners. And then uh, this day, um, we had a, uh, the fire chief was also uh, around to operate as the battalion chief. So you'd be operating by yourself for quite a long time. Uh, yeah. Uh, so initially when it, it gets uh, dispatched out, it was for the, the department. So we would respond with a fire engine uh, we get home response to come bring the ladder, uh, any tankers if needed. This was a hydrated area, so it was a, needed to rescue a ladder, any of the chief officers that come in. And then while in route, we could uh, request mutual aid. It was not automatic at that time. And now we have a robust countywide automatic aid system uh, to augment. But at that time, it wasn't. As a matter of fact, at that time, there was probably five or six different dispatch centers in our county. Now it's one. Um, so that night we had three. It was, I was actually driving, scheduled to drive. We had one backstepper and then we had a lieutenant. That lieutenant, him and I happened to work as career firefighters at a neighboring agency at that time. Um, and it was just, so I was designated driver, but that changed uh, at time of dispatch. All right. Why don't we jump into that call back in 1998? So take us through this. Well, we were all sleeping. Uh, I believe 
the call came out around 5.30 in the morning. Um, it was starting to get light out. And uh, so it was dawn time. The bells went off, report residential fire, um, possible entrapment. Uh, for some reason, um, before we went to bed, the lieutenant was like, hey, if you want to ride the seat tonight, you can. I'll drive. And I'm like, okay, not thinking we're going to have anything, maybe a couple medical assist calls, which we would have taken the little rescue on that. Uh, when this call came out, we hopped in, marked and route. And as soon as we marked and route, dispatch was advising us that um, they were getting reports of multiple entrapments at this location. Uh, we did hear the chief, uh, Mark and Ralph, as home responses, the battalion, which he did arrive before us. I mean, it was a beautiful morning. It was starting, it was uh, clear, no clouds, no rain. It was just one of those, you think of 9-11, September 11th, it was just one of those picturesque mornings and we didn't know how that it was gonna turn out like this by no means. Um, so yeah, we responded. It was probably a six minute response for us. This was not out in the country. It was in actually some of the built up areas close to uh, the high school that we protect in that area. When we arrived on the scene, um, if you want to get to that point, the chief was already there. And uh, it was, the house was a single story, looked like about a thousand square feet uh in nature just a single story uh slab um wood frame structure we did have smoke coming out of uh, a gable vent and there was like a contractor ladder already leaning towards that window uh at the time we didn't know but this was a converted attic um that was done uh to have additional family members in this house when we Pulled up on the scene. The uh, fire chief was already there. He marked it a working incident. And the look in his face, we knew it was not good. He came up to my door as I was getting out. And he said that uh, there's two children up there. And he pointed towards that window that had uh, smoke bellowing out of it. We made an initial uh, decision. We thought about doing a VES of that window but knowing it was going to be maybe a little bit before we had another crew that could actually pull a line and extinguish we decided to go in uh, pull the inch and three-quarter line went in when we went in the first floor there was not any smoke there was no heat obviously it was clear just like going on a fire alarm with nothing the inside there was a couple local police officers and some sheriff's deputies and they were standing at the base of the stairs. Um, these stairs were probably no more than 40 inches wide. Uh, they were not the typical uh, angle of climb. Uh, they were relatively steep. And um, so we got to the bottom of the stairs, we got the, the pre-connect stretched out and laying at the bottom of the stairs, and we called for water. At that time, uh, we masked up. Like I said, there was no smoke on the first floor at all. And we masked up, started proceeding up the stairs while, while the, my backstepper was getting his mask on. I went ahead and 
took the nozzle because when you looked up the stairs, you could see fire rolling across the ceiling. Um, so we proceeded up the staircase as we made the top of the stairs, smoke condition, flames rolling across the ceiling, and then um, uh, high heat. Opened the nozzle and literally, I bet you 50 gallons of water, we had the fire knocked down. We weren't at the seat of the fire, but we had majority of the fire knocked down. Ended up this upstairs attic area was converted into two bedrooms. And so when I got to the top of the stairs, I stopped and my backstepper then was pushing hose up to me as I was proceeding in. He didn't notice that I stopped. And when he did, the hose um, curved up and hit my helmet. So back in that time, I thought the cool thing to do was not to wear your chin strap. So I didn't wear a chin strap and knocked my helmet off. And when it did, it snagged my hood. When that happened, my hood flipped over uh, off my neck, off my ears, and actually covered my mask. Um, so immediately I felt heat burning and that uh, skin uh, was burning from the, the heat of the, the fire that was still retained in there, the, the heat that was retained inside the room. So I went to basically bailed down the stairs, um, got to the base of the stairs. My uh, backstepper, he took the nozzle, proceeded in. I pseudo fixed my hood the best I could. And then, I, of course, I didn't have my helmet. I didn't know where it went. So I proceeded back up the stairs. This whole time, um, I thought I was making radio transmissions to the outside and couldn't understand why command wasn't letting me know that they're acknowledging it. I never had turned the radio on. And I did not know that until the incident was pretty much over with. Um, so went up the stairs. I heard my backstepper, he went off the line and went right. And at this time, um, a home response with the ladder crew from our station arrived on scene. So they started coming in and assisting the search. So a couple of them went right. They went into the room to the right. I went left and I proceeded around and then I found my helmet. And when I found my helmet, I immediately noticed there was a crib next to my helmet. Um, put my helmet back on, saw the crib, reached up in the crib. And at first I thought it was all stuffed animals. There was quite a few stuffed animals in there. And then after um, I ended up searching real quick, I was like, okay, there's nothing there. Went back down and okay, one more time, I'm gonna look again. Reached back in, and then I felt um, what was more humanish than less stuffed toys. So I, I grabbed uh, that bundle, picked up, noticed it was a child. The child had basically the demarcation line from laying on its side, protected side, burn side, heat up. But I thought I was transmitting, saying, hey, I found one bringing the child out. So I went down the stairs. Um, of course, police officers still there wanting to help out. They're like, give them me. And 
I was like, at this point, I've got this child. Nobody else is bringing this child out other than me. Get outside. And I immediately put my mask on the child as I'm exiting the structure. And um, and then met, met a crew was on the scene. And we had several other people uh, arriving on the scene. And they they I handed that child off to the medical crew. I thought there was a chance that this child would make it. This child was burned significantly and probably had passed before we ever arrived. Um, and then shortly thereafter, within 30 seconds or, or so, the other crew brought the other child out. So I had a one-year-old and I believe they had a three-year-old that they found in there and both, both passed away uh, from uh, burns and smoke inhalation. Um, like I said, didn't take a lot of uh, water to put this fire out, um, but the outcomes um, obviously is not good for these children or this family. Uh, so conditions, I'm guessing uh, zero vis and, and the heat up in the attic. What was the attic space? Like how many square feet was it? What are we talking? It, about like it, uh, maybe 400, probably about 400 square feet. Uh, it was one of those uh, ranches, probably had a 512 pitch, maybe a, maybe four, uh, three, or four or five twelve pitch. So it wasn't a, a really area that was initially designed for living, but they did drywall it, they insulated it, they put flooring down, um, but it was not a big area at all. Both kids were found with hands? Yes, both were found with hands. That was pre-thermal uh, imaging, uh, camera predominance. Um, we didn't have any of those at the time, and it was shortly thereafter when the departments in the area started really grabbing on to that technology. And Because the department I was working for at the time actually had a grab with um, a bullet thermal imager shortly after we did a fundraiser for it but so yeah it was all done with uh, traditional search techniques and um visual and tactile so. so you brought up a lot of good talking points as you went through the story um about wearing the ppe and checking radios mm -hmm. and that's all kind of important stuff that we can get missed i appreciate your candor and just sharing all those uh all those things that didn't go well because i think sometimes we learn uh, better from those things Post that fire, how did you address search with within your uh, career department and and, and part-time department? So uh, the department did a real good job. They got um, some counselors in um, that evening. They ended up, but I ended up getting transported to the hospital uh, for uh, first and second degree burns on my neck and ears. So I... Uh, once I got released, I went home. I did not take advantage of necessarily all that they provided at the time. And you got to remember 1998, man, we were still machoism, machismo, you know, suck it up, buttercup uh, type of fire service. Uh, EAP was something, but it wasn't what we we provide now. We, we The whole mental health aspect of that, the PTSD. Um, but the department themselves, they they. They took care of any medical bills I had. Uh, they provided the counseling, provided EAP services. Um, I did go to one session. Um, my big thing is, is I always talk about 
have good hobbies. My hobby is woodworking and doing construction. I built a fence around my backyard that week. <laughs> that was kind of my counseling session. Not saying that works for everybody, but that at the time, that's what I did. Um, but nowadays, the services that are provided <laughs> to get longevity, um, the last thing you want or we want or I wanted somebody to uh, live their life off a bottle or pills. So, um, and again, I, like I said, the department did a real good job providing those services for us. When you're talking about with the younger firefighters on the job, um, what what takeaways did you have as far as how you wore your PPE or checking your radios, or did you change any of your routines post this fire? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I quickly uh, got rid of the, not wearing a chin strap. So now when I teach, I harp big time on wearing your chin strap, wearing your PPE properly. Uh, when I teach at a career center, any like introductory firefighter one, two classes, um, I harp on that big time. Make sure you wear that. It's there, it's designed for a reason. Uh, hoods, when I first started the fire service, uh, I actually started my fire service career as a volunteer up in uh, Maine in Northern Maine, and we never had hoods. We got orange fireball gloves. We, uh, only uh, hood we had was a wool hood for the wintertime and uh, long coats, three-quarter boots. That stuff doesn't fly today. <laughs> in the environment that we're fighting fires in now, uh, that would never work. So yeah, making sure we're wearing our PPE correctly every time, all the time. Uh, making sure your radio is turned on. Uh, we didn't have like the public safety mics then. Um, I'm a big proponent of public safety mic on my radio. I wear a radio strap and I wear my radio strap under my fire gear. Um, so those are some things that I, I teach. Um, being a crew that we normally don't work with all the time, uh, communication is even more important on what each one, other one's doing. Uh, maybe VESing that room, we could have got to the children quicker because that window and that ladder was actually within about five feet of the crib. <coughs> and uh, But again, we weren't sure exactly when our next arriving apparatus would have been and, uh, and actually getting somebody there extinguish the fire. Uh, like I said, about 50 gallons of water, we had the fire knocked down, still had an overhaul. Um, and the other thing, uh, too, is that's changed. And I said it earlier was automatic mutual aid. Now, if this fire happened today in our county, you would be getting four engines, two trucks, one or two battalion chiefs, one or two ambulances. Um, that's what you're going to get initially. And it's going to be a mix of the district department and then mutual aid coming in automatically. Um, Again, it may have changed the outcome. I don't know. Uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty, But I do feel that if I would have done some things differently, there may have been a chance. But again, maybe not. But I've always held that in my mind that, you know, I failed. I failed my crew, too, at that point. So that's why I harp big time on PPE. Well, that's good. I appreciate you reaching out to me and sharing the story. Um, 
you know, the goal here is real simple that we want to bring these stories to life and we want to, we want to have a kitchen table talk so we can learn, because uh, clearly we're not going to get on every fire. We're not going to get on every grab, but uh, according to Brush's last study, we're getting like 10 grabs a day, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, so we're just trying to shoot one of these out about every two weeks. Um, so I ask everybody out there, if you get a grab, uh, whether they're alive or deceased, uh, just go to firefighter rescue survey fill out that information. That information is for us, by us. If you want to share the story, uh, just get a hold of me, 239-898-0843 or grantschwalby at gmail.com. Um, you can get a hold of Nick Ladine or um, Justin McWilliams, and uh, we'll try to get one of these recorded. Uh, it's not too difficult. It takes about 30 <laughs> minutes via Zoom. Uh, the hardest part is just meeting up and, and putting that time aside. But uh, until next time, I appreciate everybody listening, and thanks, uh, Dale, for, for uh, reaching out to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening.